the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Given the somewhat extraordinary chaos playing out in container shipping right now, it was inevitable that regulators would be minded to take a proper look at the market. With freight rates soaring, emotions as well as prices are running high, and shippers have been crying foul. The carriers must be colluding, they cried, demanding action from competition authorities, particularly in the US, where the Federal Maritime Commission stands guard against such possibilities. Well, the FMC, along with most other international regulators who have an interest in the area, have taken a look, and they have found no evidence of collusion between leading container lines or evidence of market manipulation. The lines, it seems, are following the letter of the law, but they are not following the spirit of it. And it's fair to say that the regulator's interest in the lines is not about to disappear just because the headline accusation from shippers has not been upheld. Our guest today is Daniel Maffey, chairman of the Federal Maritime Commission, who joined me and Lois List's very own Queen of Containers, Janet Porter, in the Lois List studio for this week's podcast. He is one of five commissioners at the Federal Maritime Commission, and I need to point out an important disclaimer here. He is appearing today in his capacity as an independent commissioner, and his views do not necessarily represent the views of the entire commission. That said, he raises some very important issues that are of significance to the entire sector, not least his feelings that the extra fees currently being levied by lines, including congestion charges, are not right. Container executives listening should also pay heed to his call for more clarity from the ocean carriers when it comes to explaining the economics of container shipping and the industry's essential role in supporting commerce, something they have not been doing a great job of recently. Enjoy the podcast. I'll be back slightly earlier than usual next week because I'm going to be joined by the IMO Secretary General himself, Mr Kitak Lim, for World Maritime Day. But for now, over to Dan Maffey. We've been waiting to get you on for some time because the FMC has been in the headlines uh, and yet it is also one of those political institutions that I think probably not enough people really understand what it is or what it does. So I'm going to throw you the easiest question of the podcast. Um, What is the FMC and what is the significance for shipping? It should be the easiest question. Uh, The FMC is the Federal Maritime Commission is what it stands for. We are a five-member commission. It is important to note that though we're part of the executive branch, we are independent uh, and we are bipartisan. Uh, The the members are appointed on staggered terms by the president at the time, but we don't serve at the pleasure of the president. Uh, we serve until our term is up. The president does, however, pick the chairman, which is why um, my very capable uh, predecessor, Mike Corey, uh, was chairman until this year uh, when uh, President Biden appointed me chairman, and now I'm the chairman, and he's a commissioner. We still work very closely together, of course. We uh, do the commercial regulation of uh, ocean shipping. Uh, in the United States, it's a very different system domestically and internationally. We do international ocean shipping, uh, predominantly the container ships, common carriage, uh, and we try to do our best to, to protect the shipping public from any unfair practices. Excellent. A, a nice, succinct explanation of what it is that the FMC does. So with that in mind, talk to us a little bit about your view of where the industry is right now. We're in fairly extraordinary times. Um, we've seen freight rates go from a couple of thousands uh, you know, to, to shift a box from Asia into the U.S., to you know, way past twenty thousand. Um, now that's caught your attention as 
the regulator, has caught the attention of the shippers. And I would characterize the, um, the state of debate as somewhat acrimonious at the moment. And I guess you're stuck in the middle of it, really. I think that's exactly what I would say. We're stuck in the middle of it uh, because it's certainly an unprecedented time. Uh, it is a time where the supply-demand shift has just been rapid and really completely different than any previous time in the history of containerized shipping. Uh, and you asked what the FMC does. Uh, it may be important to know what the FMC doesn't do. Mm. This is a deregulated industry in the United States. We do not set rates. You know, it's not like a utility. We're not allowed to. Uh, we're not allowed to determine which cargo should be prioritized and which shouldn't. Uh, we're not allowed to, uh, you know, tell the lines what to do. What we are charged to do is make sure that the market has integrity, uh, that nobody is cheating or, 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 or taking uh, some sort of unfair advantage, and that there aren't uh, what we would call an unreasonable uh, charge, a charge that uh, could not be avoided by uh, the shipper, for instance, like a detention demerge charge um, that is designed to keep cargo moving, but ends up being, uh, you know, something else. That is that is what we're supposed to do. So obviously, we've had to up all of that, uh, mm. both our monitoring of the market uh, and our, our uh, vigilance in both trying to identify when a fee uh, or a charge would be unreasonable and and uh, enforce it, or at least uh, make the uh, carriers understand that and. and uh, act more appropriately. Uh, we obviously have uh, a lot of uh, role, I would say, in terms of the, the supply chain overall and the way terminals operate. Um, we also, though, are the agency that essentially administers the limited antitrust exemption that the carriers have to operate in alliances mm -hmm. and that uh, certain term the terminals use, even ports use in the United States to be able to cooperate with each other without running afoul of uh, what otherwise would be antitrust laws in the U.S. And with all that in mind, and the fact that this is not something that has just occurred out of nowhere, this has been a fairly long-running issue, and I don't think anybody's seeing any... Um, lack of demand coming through the market, you know, this is going to continue at least into next year as far as we can tell. Do you have any initial conclusions? Do you have any sort of views in terms of what you have looked at and what you are still yet to take a view on? Yes. I mean, one of the conclusions is is we, we've not seen any major market manipulation. Uh, so, for example, uh, when the uh, crisis started in the middle of COVID, there was clearly a decline in capacity uh, to move cargo. But that was largely due to COVID. Mm. Uh, people, be, you know, workers being absent, uh, needing to uh, less efficiently have workers uh, operating equipment because of, of safety concerns, uh, th those sort of things. And, um, and so at the beginning, it really was sort of like taking four-lane highway of traffic and, and moving it down to two or three lanes. Now, however, uh, that capacity is largely back. And in fact, if you look at almost any port in the United States, they've uh, brought in and processed more cargo in the first six months of 2021 than in any previous entire year. So the capacity has actually gone up. So maybe our four lanes of traffic is now operating in five lanes, except it's not four lanes of traffic. The demand has gone sky high. It's more like eight lanes or nine lanes of traffic trying to fit into those uh, four or five lanes. And, and that has caused uh, unprecedented issues with congestion, uh, you know, large price changes in a very short time that are very challenging for shippers, particularly medium-sized and smaller shippers, and some 
you know, seemingly rather bizarre export issues. Uh, you know, the, the, the big controversy in the United States is why would a carrier ever want to export, bring back an empty container rather than one filled with exports? And in fact, there are solid economic reasons why the opportunity cost of that, can, of that empty container it is, in fact, does cost them more money than, than bringing a, a certain kinds of exports. So trying to uh, both interpret that for the shipping public in the United States and trying to remain vigilant and make sure that the carriers and the MTOs and everybody is, a, you know, appropriately behaving and allowing people to make good market-based choices, that is one of our, our major challenges. We're sitting here in the middle of London Shipping Week, and yesterday we saw a keynote speech from the head of MSC, the second largest carrier in the world, you know, offering what was essentially a fairly impassioned defense of container shipping you know, as the servant of global trade and, and pointing out, yes, it is extraordinary, but we have been doing our best. I mean, you, you pointed out to me, unprompted, the things that the FMC doesn't do rather suggest that perhaps people have been assuming you are there to do certain things. Do you think there's that sort of misunderstanding almost in the market of how the market operates, what you do, and the reality of what can and can't be done to resolve this issue. I think I think there's certainly a misunderstanding of our role, or at least the the role that Congress has currently given us under the laws. We can't, you know, go beyond that. Uh, there's also, to some extent, a misunderstanding of uh, the economics of shipping, and and after all, it is an unprecedented time. So a, a lot of People, smart people, look at how freight rates have gone up three, four, five fold, and assume that that must mean that there's some sort of a cheating or, or profiteering is the word we always use. And, and we have to remind people that at least according to the laws, it currently is high prices, even prices as high as they are, are not in itself a violation uh, of the Shipping Act. Now, there's some we'll probably get to talking about this. There's some members of Congress that want to change that. Um, and uh, that is a, a dialogue we will continue to have. I do think it's important uh, to note, though, that we had a conference, uh, a regularly scheduled uh, uh, what we call tri trilateral conference with um, the Chinese authority that handles uh, shipping, particularly among competition, um, and the European Union. Uh, uh, DG Competition and DG Transport were both on it. Um, and all three of us, uh, even with our different ways of monitoring things and our different perspectives, all had the same conclusion, which is, at least in terms of the, the broader market and the, uh, the big alliances, or you call them consortia here in Europe, uh, there is not any sort of you know, a reduction, artificial reduction of capacity that would raise prices. Mm -hmm. There is not uh, some sort of a artificially raising prices that aren't based on the market. And in fact, if you were to lower prices, you know, force lowering of prices, which as I mentioned, we are not allowed to do, but let's say you did it, you would have even worse congestion because the the demand would then naturally with the economics being the way they are supply and demand the demand would go up even farther so it is that you know that conundrum that it really is so much more demand than than this uh, than these shippers have ever been used to I'm going to bring Janet in at this point because I think you know we have spoken on the podcast previously about that question of you know shipping profiting or profiteering I mean. Our conclusion certainly was, you know, if they are profiteering, then they're, you know, historically really bad at it. Yeah, so why do you think it is that the carriers themselves seem to be the target of so much complaints and, and animosity? Because there is this huge um, friction, still a lot of friction between the lines and their customers. And yet you haven't found that the lines have been doing anything wrong. 
I wouldn't say I wouldn't say that. I do think they're. But we'll get to some of the stuff. But they're not. They're not uh, manipulating the market um, in a way that would uh, trigger uh, the. Uh, you know, our our. We, we can't go to the. We couldn't go to the courts and uh, successfully argue that they're manipulating the market or disband the, the alliances. So what is it that you think they should have done? Is there more they should or could have done to help to ease this supply chain crunch? We talked earlier, you mentioned earlier about surcharges and other ancillary fees. Are you um, concerned about some of those that are being levied? I, I am. I think I think there's two questions in, in your question. So the first question is sort of what I think the problem is the legacy of what the container lines had, this chronic overcapacity for so long, leading to extremely low prices. And that has naturally led to a kind of dependence on low prices. Many businesses in the United States, and particularly some small and medium-sized businesses, have essentially counted on this extraordinarily low uh, cost of shipping, and it's, they've worked it into their business models. Um, and given that that didn't change for decades, who can really blame them? But at the end of the day, now you've got you've got a much more different situation where, without really changing capacity, as I say, I, I believe capacity overall has increased uh, since the beginning of COVID, but nowhere near the the level of demand that you now have uh, many shippers in the United States whose business models are upside down. And, uh, you, you know, is that their fault or whatever? I mean, I don't think any, as you and I were talking earlier uh, offline, and none of it was predictable. Um, but naturally, when they see four, five, six times, and then in certain instances, particularly if you're a smaller, medium-sized business and you absolutely need to bring a limited, smaller number of containers in, you may end up paying those crazy charges, 10000 20000 a 40-foot uh, coming from Asia. Uh, and, and it just seems like to them, seeing from their perspective, there must be some sort of cheating going on. How could this be? Uh, because COVID has created a market, these market conditions that, that really are just completely unusual. But those, I mean, those same people weren't complaining at the point that they were paying rock bottom prices when the supply chains were stretched so thin that, you know, ships were having to operate. What I guess is the missing issue is that, you know, there wasn't that investment in infrastructure when the times were yes. good enough. yes. Um, now, yes. Uh, so I think you know we, we, the question now is whether we are going to see any robustness put into those supply yeah. chains. But that's not really a question for the FMC. That's a it commercial it, question. It isn't. It, well, it, it is in the sense that that. Uh, well, let me put it this way: it, it may not be a, a question for us in terms of our statutory authority, but it's certainly a question that people are asking us, including members of Congress who give us the statutory authority. So, yeah, I think a lot of the problem has been shipping has been underpriced. Uh, one of those things has been talked a lot about London. Let's talk about in the United States, which is the needs of decarbonization. That price has not been uh, factored in. But also, uh, in my view, the sort of chronic oversupply, the the fact that new ships have been subsidized by uh, China and, and Korea in order to keep up with China. Um, and so you, you, you had for a long time that kind of over overcapacity. How much should it cost to bring in a cargo container. I hear from a lot of uh, shippers complaints that, you know, this is an outrageous price to do this. Uh, but who sets the price? It's the market that sets the price. Uh, for a long time, we, we've done the calculations. Before COVID, it was roughly about 14 cents to bring in a pair of shoes. We call them trainers here, you know, sneakers. Uh, and uh, now, even if it's 10 times that much, which it is for, for some importers, that's $1.40 to bring in a pair of sneakers. 
but they're going to sell for between $50 and $150. That ocean freight is not a significant factor. It's one of the reasons why you haven't seen the kind of inflation that people would have predicted if you, well, shipping is five times as more as expensive it is. Wouldn't that lead to inflation? Well, ocean shipping is a very tiny, tiny piece of that. So, so that, again, it confuses people, but it's not just about the FMC. It's also just about the way the market works. So do you think that um, shipping is always going to remain a fairly low part of the total retail price. But do you think also shippers have got to get used to paying more permanently now? They had ship- shipping transport far too cheaply for far too long. And now realistically, they're going to have to pay more, partly because of other things you mentioned, such as decarbonization. I, I think so. I, I think that's that, is that realistically, what, what is it going to be? I, I think one of the reasons why we're not going to see a complete return uh, to the, 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 the bottom prices is because no matter how many new ships you build, uh, the capacity of the rest of the system has now reached uh, the limits. So uh, you can have as many ships as you want, but they still have to be unloaded. You still have to then take those containers and put them on trucks or trains. Um, you still have to have warehousing space, et cetera. And that entire supply chain uh, is, is now we, we've reached those limitations. And so that is going to mean that in effect, the ocean capacity is going to have that sort of limit. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say it, it, it was too cheap before or whatever, but certainly the, the process has changed. Um, there are even a few companies trying to do more uh, sourcing in the United States, or at least in Mexico, Canada, in North America. Uh, I actually think that's a good thing, right? I mean, I, I, I mean, I'd like to see more made in America. So uh, it, it is a natural progression. I think, though, that the COVID and this, the, the boom of, of, of demand that's come along with it is a shock that couldn't be predicted. And, and in that sense, I really feel for these companies. I mean, I, this is not something that I don't feel is a crisis. It's just we have limited ability at the FMC to, to do much. What about this, this ocean shipping reform bill going through Congress? What Could you just explain a little bit about that and what the goals of that are, what it hopes to achieve? Yeah, well, let me. So, so you asked a question that I postponed answering. But I want to answer it before I answer the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which is, you know, so what what about these fees and other things? So I don't think the carriers are, are acting uh, like perfect uh, corporate citizens here either. Uh, what I, the, the overall market, the, 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 the alliances, for instance, there's not cheating in terms of artificially lowering supply. But what there is is and sometimes I call it nickel and diming, though it costs a lot more than a nickel and a dime. Um, or a penny or a pence or whatever, it, 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 the, what you're seeing here is these, these charges, these fees being charged above these freight rates. So even while the freight rates have gone sky high, you're still seeing these fees. Um, congestion fees, uh, the FMC started, launched an investigation on August 2nd uh, to look into these things. The, the problem with them is we've seen them before. We certainly saw congestion fees when LA Long Beach had a labor slowdown. But the difference was, even though I didn't particularly like them then either, at least they were justified by the fact that this was one port with a particular instance. The idea of charging an extra fee for congestion when we've had over 12 months of congestion, when it's affected not only every port in the United States, but virtually every port in the world, to me seems absurd. So these extra fees, I, we've, we've got to get to the bottom of them. Uh, you know, Are they legal? Usually, if they're announced with enough notice, they are technically legal, but they still have to be for a real purpose. And, uh, and so <clears throat> in terms of the uh, Ocean Shipping Reform Act, how does that relate to that is that I do think that, there, that Congress has sort of said, OK, well, even if we want to keep a very market-based, fairly deregulated system, there's things we could do uh, to strengthen the FMC's ability um, to look at unreasonable detention to merge, other kinds of unreasonable fees, uh, those sort of things. 
And then there are some in Congress. And I actually I think uh, I think it's fair to say that the sponsors of the Ocean Shipping Reform Act do have some skepticism about uh, some of the deregulation and do wonder whether we should we should have more authority, maybe not to set prices, but to at least uh, ensure that um, exports are reasonably taken, you know, when when they can be. And some of the other uh, things that are in there, you know, will that language go through as is? <clears throat> I mean, as you probably know, I'm a former member of Congress myself. We can't serve in Congress and be in the administration at the same time, and which is the opposite of, of what it is in Great Britain. But um, so I know something about Congress. Uh, th that, th that legislation won't go through as is. It may not even be the base legislation. But I do think that there is a real mood in Congress to do something. Uh, and that is certainly the Garamendi uh, Johnson bill is part of the discussion and should be. Well, the mood in Congress, if I understand correctly, also seems to be against so-called foreign lines. I, the, yeah. Is there a misunderstanding? I mean, these foreign lines are not foreign to us. Yeah. Um, they're just not U.S. lines. Well, there, there's a misunderstanding in the sense that I think there are, there are some, certainly in the public and, and, and even in Congress, that think all of the so-called foreign lines are Chinese. Um, and there, there is a major Chinese line. And actually, that chi line, uh, Costco, is, is you know, you know, uh, purchased OCL, and so that's getting bigger. But it's clearly not the only one. It's not even the biggest one. Um, and uh, you know, and, and although does you know, China and the United States are competitive in many, many ways, uh, I don't think that uh, Denmark and uh, France and Geneva and uh, Switzerland even put together pose much of a threat to the United States. So we, uh, we you can laugh now. We have we. <laughs> We do have a, a lot of misunderstanding. That said, though, um, there, there is this perception that these lines are not uh, pro-U.S. exports, that they're not doing, uh, you know, uh, their part in kind of a uh, sort of a tacit agreement that, yes, they have access to this great American uh, consumer base, uh, but they also have a responsibility to, to bring exports. And, and uh, you know, look, I, as an elected official uh, formerly representing an agricultural district, uh, I, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that. And I, I do think that that if you do see anything going through Congress, it will probably mostly address exports. And and I, on my own, have tried to do what I can at the FMC, designated a, a particular person to handle export-related uh, complaints and, and help exporters navigate the system. We've appointed a, uh, a board of shippers uh, to help advise us, half of whom are exporters, uh, notwithstanding that, you know, we do more imports in the U.S. than exports, but we want to make sure the exporters are well represented. So that is a key driver, I think, of, of potentially of congressional change. But these foreign lines, most of them are you know, the commercial companies. How can you tell them they've got to move exports, which might be very expensive because of repositioning costs to get containers to some location a long way from the port? I mean, is it right that you can actually maybe tell them they've got to move this cargo when actually it costs them more money than moving empties back to yeah. where the boxes are needed? I think it depends on how pure you want the, the market to be. Uh, you know, right. If, if we're just going to say market forces alone, uh, the, 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 the lines can make a very good market-based argument that this decision is not based on trying to discriminate against U.S. exports, but in fact, simply that the opportunity cost of that container uh, you know, both the fact that it has to stay in the U.S. to get the exports, but but also largely unrealized in the U.S. is how long it, it would be in Asia dr dropping off those exports. That cost is more to them. But that said, I think as we come out of this um, and containers, the, for all the talk of a container shortage, <clears throat> it's really more of a container repositioning issue. As we come out of this, I think uh, 
some of that, it, you know, it will be lessened. Um, and I do think to me, I, I'm not a pure marketeer. I mean, I, you know, I'm, uh, like to think of myself as a business friendly Democrat, but, but, you know, I do have a party and I, I, I don't believe that total deregulation makes sense. So, you know, as long as you do it very carefully, I'm okay with sort of saying that there is some obligation on the part of the carriers uh, to, to, you know, carry exports at a reasonable price to them. And if they're, if they're saying, well, we'll carry your export, but sorry, it's going to cost more. And the exporter says, I, you know, I can't pay that. Well, that's part of the market. But to not even give, allow that, you know, sell that space to an exporter, I, I think that could be uh, considered unreasonable under certain circumstances. Again, that's going to have to be a matter for Congress. But that, just briefly going back on that issue of foreign carriers, I mean, that, even that term is used in a somewhat pejorative sense yeah. in the way it is used in the U.S., and, and you said yourself, you know, there's there's, there's certain sort of, uh, you know, forces there that assume that this is, you know, some sort of Chinese conspiracy almost. But I mean, do you think that this episode at least is an opportunity to raise the profile of, you know, how the market works, how shipping works, uh, and and get some a little bit more common sense almost into that argument? If it's an opportunity, it's an opportunity not being taken by the carriers. Right. Uh, you know, they are their own worst enemy in a lot of ways, and particularly in the United States. They're... They don't believe uh, most of them. There's one exception, the, but but uh, major exception. But most of them don't have. Um, they have a lot of, of, of U.S. employees more than I would think most congressmen know. Um, but they don't have people that uh, that go to the government. They don't have uh, public relations people. They avoid the, the mainstream media as much as they can in the U.S. Um, it, that it's a, it is a real issue. Um, they're not well. They're not well known, and and so in that sense, and they they clearly don't flag their their, you know, their ships U.S. There's you know good economic reasons for that, but that doesn't mean that that uh, people don't notice. Um, and and that is that is a big challenge for them. And then some of these things that they do, like the fees, for instance, uh, you know, these congestion fees, and then you know that makes no sense to a lot of the shippers. Even when we ask, they don't necessarily explain. Um, we asked one uh, liner, well, why are you charging this congestion fee? And they said, we don't charge congestion fees. It's called a value-added fee. <laughs> so, what value are you at? Do, do you wrap up the container in a, in a Christmas wrapping and it's put a little bow on it? There's, it, 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 it? Those kind of things do no good. I mean, not only is it potentially unfair in a, in a legal sense, but from a PR sense, it's, it, it, it makes the, the entire industry look bad. Uh, so, so we, you know, there's a lot of work that if, if there's, a, like I said, if it's an opportunity, they're not taking it. There, there is no effort in the United States that I've seen, at least not a good effort, to, uh, to, to make people understand that these carriers are not some sort of a foreign, uh, uh, you know, force, but that in fact that that, that they they facilitate mm. a good portion of the U.S. economy. I mean, in defense of the lines, I would say that certainly over the last uh, five years or so, there has been that palpable nervousness when you speak to a container CEO, they want a lawyer by their side. They don't want to be seen as doing anything that could land them in hot water with any antitrust authority. And I guess if there is a a, a sort of an effort to be low profile, it may be born out of that unwillingness to say something that might be used in evidence against them. Look, I'm not saying that, 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 that the CEO should do a media tour of the United States um, I mean, they might, you know, it might be a good time for that if we, if we emerge from COVID enough, but, uh, but I'm not saying that that they should do that, but some of these policies, 
uh, clearly just put some put your common sense cap on, you know, before you before you think about these fees, before you call them something. Um, and and generally, a lot of the customer service could be so much better. Um, you know, we, we look into whether it's reasonable or not. And, and some a lot of the times the lines are following the letter of the law. But boy, they're not following the spirit of it. And uh, so, again, you know, yes. Do, do I think they're unfairly characterized? Often I do. But it's not my job to to be there, you know, to be their spokesperson. They they need to step up and uh, and have a little bit more of a explain more what they do. When I talk to I talk to CEOs a lot. But frankly, part of what we do is moral suasion. We are independent officials, so I can I can call them up and um, I'm not speaking for the Biden administration. By the way, I'm not speaking for the Biden administration on this podcast either, and and I'm not even speaking for the other four members of the commission. We didn't, but but I am speaking for myself as one commissioner who happens to be chairman. But when I call them up, I say, uh, you know, why don't you take more exports or do this? And they'll tell me usually a story. And it's true. I'm not saying they lie. That story, that's a really good story. And I say, get that out there. Let people know. But for whatever, so I'm not asking them to, 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 to you know, always be available or whatever, but just to, to, to pay a little bit of attention to, at the very least, the shipping public in the U.S. Um, and so, look, some have gotten much, much better. Um you know, Maryskin for and, and even Costco is actually fairly image conscious in the United States, and will, will you know will you know contribute to uh, local charities and stuff. Probably some of the others do as well. But uh, but there needs to if if that's what they want, there needs to be more of an effort. But they're represented in Washington. You've got the World Shipping Council, which is there to mm-hmm. sort of you know, lobby or, or represent the industry. Also, I get the impression, certainly in Europe, that because of all the supply chain issues, they have been a lot more visible. They're getting a lot more coverage in the mainstream business press. And I, you know, I feel this may be a, has been a sort of opportunity in a way for them to, under, especially, and the Ever Given as well, that yeah. focus global attention on supply chains and container shipping. So you feel they still need to do a lot more to I, explain I, I, what they do. I, well, I, I do. I, I, look, it may not be fair, but Part of the challenge that uh, the industry has, and, and we even as regulators of the industry has, is the story of the uh, of the entire supply chain is told by pictures of the ever given sideways in the Suez mm-hmm. Canal and sixty some odd ships waiting outside of, uh, of of San Pedro Bay for uh, some sort of terminal at Long Beach, LA. Now people look at th- how people look at that a uh, line like that and conclude, well, the problem is not enough ships. I'm, I'm not sure. But whatever it is, uh, even the administration, the, the Biden administration appointed somebody as sort of a port liaison. I know him well, uh, and that title notwithstanding, he's looking at the entire supply chain. But still, the perception is the problem is with the ships and with the ports, when in fact, we're, you know, yes, there are some issues there, no, no doubt about it. Whenever you're going to have this much uh, volume, there's going to be some issues. But largely, it's Things like shortages of chassis, shortage of truckers, shortage of warehouse workers and, and warehouse space um, that's creating this, you know, this backup, which then creates the, the 60 some something ships uh, waiting and the need actually for more ships to because they, they're they're held up in, in L.A. Long Beach. So um, so it's not all their fault, uh, but certainly the industry uh, needs to, you know, need something. Look, it, it is a challenge. Um not all the the NVOCCs, the the you know go between. Some of them are charging outrageous prices, or what I would call outrageous prices, uh, for seemingly outrageous prices. Probably market based though, also um, for uh, space that they've already you know purchased uh, w- with their agreements. Um, but 
nobody points any fingers at them. You know, most of them, most of there's there's thousands of NVOCCs in the United States. Most of them are 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 not in that same kind of business, but there are certainly a few. And you don't see anybody complaining about those, just about the, the carriers themselves. But on the question of freight rates, and we have seen these incredible spot rates, but not so much on the market on the contract rates, do you feel that it's it was important perhaps to explain to shippers that if they had longer term volume um, price commitments with the lines, they wouldn't be subject to these huge spikes? I, look, the I think the challenge is, is that we, I, I don't know how this is in Europe, but in the United States, we value small, medium-sized businesses. And we value exporters and we value manufacturers in the United States who often import, uh, but import a relatively little bit. Well, those are those are all meritorious groups, but they're all groups that actually are disadvantaged by uh, a completely free market um, because they don't have the market power. So in the U.S., we keep on people keep on telling us the market's being manipulated, et cetera. It, it's not that the market is being manipulated. It's that the market is being predominant. Uh, in my view, uh, if you want to see those groups protected, you're going to have to do it the, either externally with some sort of a comp compensatory program, or you're going to have to be willing to not make the market the only dominant thing. Well, I, a salutary lesson there for all of the uh, line CEOs listening to this podcast, and I know you do. Um, if you're worried about your perception, you know where to find me. You are always welcome to come on and give your perspective on the Lawyers List podcast. But for now, uh, FMC Chairman Dan Maffey, thank you very much for joining the Lawyers List podcast. Wonderful to be with both of you. Thank you.